Welcome to the Making Ways podcast sponsored by Ripple Effect. Today, we're here with Bobby and Dara. Hi, Bobby. Hi. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You are in a professional in clinical laboratory sciences. Is that correct? That is correct. So this is what you do for a living. This is your professional. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. can you give us a little bit of background? Yeah. I received, well, at the time in the military, it's called Medical Laboratory Journeyman. I received that back in 1991. I was in the military until 1996, and I continued on from there with my professional career. I've worked at probably 12 different hospitals in my lifetime. You were intimately involved with internal testing at Sanford for PCR tests. Correct. COVID testing. Mm Mm-hmm. Could you give us a little bit of background about that? I mean, this is what you did. Uh, I was not actually in the lab testing it. What I did, because my emphasis is on regulatory compliance coding, so what I did was I would set up events for the testing to take place. What makes a person vaccinated versus unvaccinated when they're admitted to the hospital? During the middle of um, everything that was going on, during this outbreak, the CDC did come out and did provide some guidelines for the hospitals that if you received the vaccination and it was less than 14 days from receiving that vaccination, um, not quite sure if it was first dose, second, I think it was first dose for those that are just only single dose, and then it was second dose for those that had the double dose. If it was less than 14 days, you were considered unvaccinated. Was there a pandemic of the unvaccinated? In my professional opinion, I do not believe so. What was it about this outbreak that made you question how it was being handled? Well, there were three specific things. Um, One of the first things was that they were calling it a coronavirus. Now, In my training, coronavirus basically means a cold. Not that it does now. Early 2000s, they added other chimeras. They added hybrids and influenza-like viruses as well. But in my opinion, it was a cold. So you do not vaccinate for a cold. Why? Because cold viruses mutate at such a rapid rate, you would never be able to catch up with it. So that was my first question. Why are we vaccinating against a cold if it is a coronavirus? Why are we doing this? And why are we doing it during an outbreak? So it's not even just vaccinating against it. It's during an outbreak, which means the the vaccine escape would have been even greater for the virus because it's always going to want to mutate exponentially so. Then the other thing that happened February of 2020, the story about the Diamond Princess came out. And the Diamond Princess basically was a cruise ship. And this cruise ship was uh, stayed at port, which means it had to stay out at sea, and it could not port because there was a massive outbreak of COVID-19 on the ship. Now, the thing about it is, is any scientist will tell you, this is the perfect experiment. You have people who are in close proximity with one another, They still have access to clean air, outdoors. You also have the different age groups that would have been required 
for you to be able to say, okay, this age group was affected this way, this age group this way. Well, after all was said and done, there were approximately 1,321, give or take a few uh, people that were over the age of 70. The fatality rate only happened with those that were over the age of 70, or the, I would say the fatalities, not the fatality rate, the fatalities was over the age of 70. There were about seven of them, which puts it at 0.01. When we heard about the diamond, or when I heard about the diamond princess, I really began to question, wait a minute, this appears to be something that really affects the elderly the worst, and maybe those with comorbidities and maybe the really, really young with other issues. That was one thing that really, really caught my eye. And um, the thing is, is that we also had to look at how it was being tested. They use real-time PCR to test for this virus. Well, basically what real-time PCR is, is it goes through several cycle revolutions. To put it in layman's terms, if you compound a penny, every day for 30 days, you're going to get $5 million some odd dollars at the end of 30 days. It is just exponential. Same thing happens with the virus. And by the way, the virus supposedly or allegedly was never isolated. So they used pieces, okay? And this, this, this happens. And I'm not saying that everybody has something isolated and then you are able to identify the whole virus. In this case, it was this little snippet. And the thing about it is all PCR does is amplify. It does not have the ability to diagnose. It, you have to take in so many other things into consideration, which I'm sure uh, the doctors were doing as well. But the thing is, is what happened and what this caused was a massive increase in cases. So you see how what's happening here. So when you increase your cases... And on top of that, because you're just looking for this snippet, doesn't mean you're sick, doesn't mean you're going to give it to somebody else, just means that whatever this snippet is, your body or the, your blood has this snippet in it. Okay. Just for clarity, you're talking about snippets of DNA. Correct. Then you have all of those people that were preemptively screened. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Even during flu season, people don't walk into a store and say, we're going to or travel. We're going to go ahead and we're going to do a test on you to make sure you're negative for the flu. It was, to me, it was unprecedented. So what happens when you're testing, 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 you're going to increase your cases. And those were those tickers at the bottom of CNN, MSNBC, all of them. That number, to me, was erroneously calculated because you were testing people really with no symptoms. How does PCR testing relate to hospitalizations? If a person was indicated to have this virus in them, and if they were symptomatic, then they would follow up with their doctor, of course. A lot of times these tests were taken in the ER they could have been taken anywhere, but they taken in the ER. And then it would cause that patient to be admitted with a COVID infection admission, even though they may have been suffering from you know, walking pneumonia or, or whatever. COVID, the AMA, 
was very specific with COVID diagnosis codes. Once you were admitted with a COVID infection diagnosis or COVID positive test diagnosis, and you got admitted, and if subsequently you were put on a respirator and subsequently you were put on remdesivir, whatever it was, the amount of reimbursement coming in from CMS was very high, in my opinion. It was really, really unbelievable. Many people at the beginning, from what I am to understand, if you came in and you had the sniffles or if you had a little of this, little of that, or if you were maybe had trouble breathing, whatever, you know, they were not actually admitting people until they got really, really, really bad, which, again, in my opinion, would not be appropriate because if you have someone who has a sickness and they're suffering, then you would want to be able to treat them for whatever is causing this ailment and to alleviate that particular symptom, whether it be breathing, whether it be headaches, whatever it is. So there were a lot of hospitals out there. And I'm not saying Sanford or Vera or anything. This is just all across the board. There were a lot of hospitals out there that when patients were at their worst were turned away. And then that caused a lot of problems with symptoms that then went into a much more acute presentation that needed immediate attention. So there was concern there when I was looking up the coding because my emphasis, while I am a medical laboratory scientist, my emphasis is on regulation, coding, and compliance. So I was looking at everything that was kind of swirling around what the operational processes were and how they impacted one another. And I was seeing a just a massive increase in reimbursement specifically for COVID and COVID-associated hospitalizations. Where do you think things are going from here? Well, considering everything that we've talked about today and the fact that as a scientist, I did have concerns because things were not matching up for me. I would say if the rollout of injections was not for health reasons, and in fact, maybe causing detrimental effects on those who have taken it, what was it really for? I'd like to quote here, I think it's Benjamin Franklin, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And this is concerning because a lot of things changed after these vaccine mandates were pushed out there. And it's, it's not for me to say someone should take it or not take it. That's not this discussion. It's all about whether or not someone should be forced to. And, and that's where I have my sovereignty. That's where I stand. I would like to give some recommendations for your listeners, if that's okay. Absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. The first recommendation I would like to give is Dr. David Martin. It is a video of him talking to the EU. He is a patent expert, and he found some very interesting information that I think everyone here could benefit from. Also, I would recommend Ed Dowd's book, Cause Unknown. Ed Dowd is a former BlackRock managing director, and he saw a lot of trends. Those trends specifically translated to 
the actuaries coming up in 2021 with a 40% increase in all-cause mortality in the working group. I think this book will really shed light on a lot of that. I would also like to let people know what's happening now. A Montana legislature, there is a bill that is being pushed through. It has not officially been approved yet, but it is being pushed through. It is Bill 645. This bill specifically states that those people who were vaccinated are no longer allowed and could face charges if they donate any blood or any tissues. And then last but not least, Pfizer has recently also posted a list of the potential side effects. There's a lot to think about. Yeah. And this is far from over. Yeah. I think we're all on a journey of truth. And the big thing right now is we we can't sit here and play the blame game with the hospitals or the nurses or whatever. We really do have to move forward and think about how can we make sure this doesn't happen again? How can we make sure we are fully informed? Bobby, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me.